Well, we are studying the book of Revelation, as you know, in chapter 1, but I want to take you back to the prophet Isaiah by way of introduction. Isaiah chapter 9, to be specific. I want to just look at a couple of passages here before we move back to Revelation chapter 1. There is, of course, all throughout Scripture this great theme that there is coming a day when righteousness will reign across the whole earth, not just in the eternal state, but we believe there will be a literal millennial reign of Christ for the purpose of overturning all the godless kings and overturning all of the unrighteous judgments that have taken place among the nations so that on the throne of David, as promised by God Himself, there would be one who would rule And when equity was needed and fair courts were needed and there was justice needed and righteousness needed, you would find in that wonderful kingdom promised ages ago a righteous king. Not just a king of all kings and a lord of all lords, but a righteous and holy ruler. And he would be a dictator. I've talked politics with people and they've said, oh, democracy is the greatest system. And while it may indeed be for a time, uh, sustainable freedom even in a democracy is impossible because human hearts have to be changed and transformed for even a democracy to have sustainable freedom. And so I'll sometimes simply say to someone, no, you know, the only kind of government that will actually survive and thrive is a dictatorship to which of course they are shocked and then I have the privilege of telling them listen there is coming a benevolent dictator so rich so righteous so pure so powerful so unassailable and he's the sweetest master of all and all of his subjects will be His blood-purchased, indentured slaves and servants. Because they've been purchased out of the slave market of sin and they've been brought into the family by adoption. And He will rule and reign over His people in righteousness. And even for a time in the 1,000-year literal reign of Christ, while there are believers and unbelievers on the earth, and we'll see some of that in our study later on, even during those years, there will be righteous judgment in every, listen, every decision. It's promised, of course, in the prophets. Isaiah speaks of it here. I love this. Verse 2 of Isaiah 9, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them and you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness and they will be glad in your presence. Speaking of this great one who is to come. As with the gladness of harvest and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Absolutely no more war. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government, (laughs) think about this, in our political turmoil, the government will rest on his shoulders. That is utterly rest. It'll be there. It'll set there. And His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There won't be an end to the increase of His government or of peace. Look at that. No end to the increase of peace. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. Look at this. With justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That is some of the most exciting promise in all of Scripture, that there's coming a benevolent dictator. Everything about 
world empires and nations and national interests and cultural integration will rest on him. And his titles will be on our lips. He's a counselor who's so marvelous and rich in everything he says. He's, his power is unassailable and notable. He is eternal and he is the prince of peace and everything about his peaceful government increases. I love it. Turn over to chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, verse 1. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what, by what his ears hear. What does that mean? That he won't actually be the instrument of it? No, he will. He'll see it. His eyes will see it. His ears will hear it. But it won't be autonomous. It will be according to his righteous heavenly Father. And with the righteous, with righteousness, verse 4, he will judge the impoverished and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth, here it is, with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins. You can be thankful that the core of his being is righteousness and purity and integrity and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. He keeps his promises. This is what later John on the island of Patmos would see in his vision. This is what he'd see. He'd see the image of the matchless splendor of the risen king coming to minister to his people on the cusp of terrible judgment that is about to come. And on the cusp of that terrible judgment, his, his appearance in this vision of his servant John, written for our encouragement and comfort was to give us such, a, such a, an idea of His splendor, such a rich expression of these very things that are to come with His government, that we are standing in awe, self-purified as a church, readying ourselves for the coming judgment, praying for lost souls, praying for those saints who will be in that particular tribulation period, and praying that the Lord Jesus comes and the zeal of the Lord of hosts accomplishes it quickly. That's what you have in Revelation chapter 1. Let's look back to this great chapter, this opening vision of John. He's already expressed to us the greetings that come from the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to His people. He's already mentioned that there are local fellowships on earth that really represent at the time the circle of gospel influence that would go from Europe and then across the globe reaching out from originally Jerusalem and then to those surrounding countries and surrounding regions and then to the remotest part of the globe. These are seven churches that represent everything God wanted to say to His people then and all the way through the history of the church until the judgment. And in this wonderful view early on of the glories of heaven, you see the transcendence of God we already saw, the nearness of God to His people, we looked at that, the perfection and omnipotence, the, the absolute power of God through His Spirit, and the Son's faithfulness and His witness. He is said here to be God's faithful one, His firstborn, His King forever. And so there was in verse 5 praise for the Godhead, for Christ's love and mercy, and then our wonderful privilege in it, verse 6. And then the promise was given, paralleled the prophet Daniel in chapter 7. It was a promise that he is coming and that all will see him and that the Jews, his people Israel, will be absolutely astonished and stunned. 
Zechariah tells us in chapter 12 that when they see the coming of their Messiah, they will all go to their separate homes as families and generations, and they will literally weep and sob that they were wrong about their Messiah and that He's now come in glory and judgment. And the whole earth will be in shock, this revelation says, and it is decreed to be so. So it is to be, verse 7, amen. And so then verse 8 was a declaration of the very power of God to accomplish it. I am the beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He surrounds it all. He is in and through it all. He will accomplish it all. Nothing can thwart His power. And we saw last time then that John now comes as God's servant, the king's servant, and he's called to write. He's in prison, as you know, verse 9, and he is told to write down everything that he sees that the Spirit reveals. And he's to write it down in a book, or literally a scroll, a rolled up scroll that was sealed with a seal, an official seal, a seal that was a royal seal and could not be broken. He was to write it down and put it in this scroll. And what he begins to write in preparation for sending it to God's people, notably these churches, he reveals this opening vision. He says he was on, it was on the Lord's day when he was in the Spirit, and he heard behind me a very loud voice like a blaring brass section. A blaring trumpet. And it says in verse 12, he turned to see the voice that was speaking with him. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, he says. And what you have here in this section is the king's presence with his people revealed to John. John is writing down what he sees and the king is revealing his presence with his people. Such an important message for God's people in the coming days and the warnings of judgment. It doesn't matter how many millennia go by between the time John wrote this in 96 AD or so and the time Jesus actually comes for his people. It doesn't matter how many millennia take place. So far it's been 2,000 years. But it doesn't matter how many. All of God's people, for all of church history until Christ arrives, need to know that He's with His people. And He never leaves us nor forsakes us. And when you read Revelation, this is what you see. Look, He's told us in detail what is coming. And He opens up with a vision of Himself. A vision of all the things you read out of Isaiah in those two chapters about this promised Messiah to come. Here you have an opening vision given to the last living apostle while he's in exile on the island of Patmos for our encouragement. You get to see your risen king. You get to see him in the characteristics and perfections that give us the most comfort. And so John opened up, you remember last time, with this revelation of the king's presence with his people. And in each of these images, we are immediately now brought to see Christ's absolute power, his authority, his purity, and his exalted glory. He is Lord, and this is a vision of his lordship over all things, and particularly his lordship over you and me. I don't know why it is that some who profess Christ think that the lordship of Christ is somehow something to chafe at. I actually find it like uh, the, the greatest securing reality in a Christian's life. If, if Luke 17.10 means anything then it's certainly for our comfort when Jesus says, look, after you as my servant have come to obey all of my commands, just know this, you're still to be considered an unworthy servant or slave of Christ who's done what's expected of them. 
Look, he is Lord and Master. He's a benevolent dictator. He's a sweet master, the sweetest of all. His burdens are not difficult. His commands are easy. His burden is light. Come to me, he said, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. You can have no more encouraging reality than that we have a Lord who is ultimate Lord. And he is in the midst of his people and he wanted to give us a vision of his perfections. He wanted to give us a vision so practical for our personal understanding of where we are in redemptive history and what is to come that that this is like him sitting down in a fireside chat with his people and you asking him personal questions in a Q&A. What are you like? What is your power like? What are we to do to respond to you? How are we to know you intimately? What is it you, you would want from your people? How are we to know you? What about these promises? What about your place in this future kingdom? You get all of that in this vision with these images. You say, really? Yes, you do. You remember last time the first thing that was revealed about this great, majestic, risen Lord of ours is that John first saw seven golden lampstands and that he was in the midst of the lampstands. You notice verse 13, in the middle of them, he saw this one like a son of man. You remember last time the seven golden lampstands, in verse 20 they're they're defined for us. The symbol is interpreted for us. The lampstands are the seven churches. These lampstands are symbols or figures. They represent the seven churches. And the lampstand is, is by, by imagery, a place of illumination. It is a place where light, the light of truth, shines forth with influence. And so the lampstand representing the church tells us that the churches are places where the light of truth, particularly the light of Christ in the gospel, is to shine forth with influence. In fact, if you look at chapter 2 for a moment, the church of Ephesus, the local ministry of the church of Ephesus, is warned that if they don't repent of doing their busy ministry the way they've been doing it, in in a lack of first love, doing it with self-centeredness and pride, if they don't stop doing that, they could have, notice, their lampstand, verse 5, taken away. In other words, their spiritual influence and usefulness could get utterly sidelined if they don't wake up and start serving Christ with humility. I also told you last time that this is imagery borrowed from the fourth chapter of Zechariah's prophecy where he mentions a golden lampstand that had seven light sources. We looked a few weeks ago at the fact that the seven, the number seven, is the number for completion. We traced it from the prophets all the way through the book of Revelation. It's the sense of fullness. And Zechariah uses this imagery in chapter 4 of his prophecy of one golden lampstand with seven light sources. And those seven light sources represent the full testimony of truth shining out from the center of God's people, Israel. And it shined out in all of its completeness and fullness as a full witness from Israel to the surrounding nations. It was a complete truth. It was a truth about God. It was revealed to His people. And it was intended to be a light source in all of its fullness for the nations surrounding Israel. And then you remember last time Zechariah also included two olive trees. So you had one golden lampstand with seven light sources connected to that lampstand, and then you had two olive trees. And those represented, he says, the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth, according to Zechariah 4.14. What does this mean? It means that God has chosen the churches or His people to be light sources to the world in all of their complete gospel and then the, the olive trees are going to come at a strategic time in the middle of the tribulation and those olive trees are going to have a particular kind of witness. They are God's witnesses to the world of the majesty and power of God and His absolute rule over the earth. 
Revelation 11, 3 and 4 says that the two olive trees, which of course were mentioned by the prophet Zechariah, they are mentioned in Revelation as coming during the tribulation judgments. And they come on the scene, and it is an amazing scene. They come on the scene. No one can touch them. No one can injure them. No one can kill them. And they are able to do amazing, miraculous things. We'll study that when we get there. But the whole purpose of them being on the earth and selected is that as olive trees, they are bearing the fruit of the gospel in the midst of God's judgments. His mercy is being poured out on pagan earth while the Antichrist is ruling and reigning and God is bringing judgments before the return of Christ. Amazing. And at one point, when they were finished with their witness and it was complete, the world is able to take them on and kills them. And there they lay in the street for a three-day party, dead witnesses' day after which the Lord resurrects them in front of the whole world. They're witnesses. So John's vision opens up with the imagery that connects to the churches he's about to speak to, and here's what he's conveying, that they are lights of revelation. They are gospel witnesses, and that light from those places is to go forth from the faithful pulpits and congregations of the ministry as they take the gospel to the world. And John says that the Lord himself, I mean, if you think that's a daunting task, if you think that's too difficult, if you think we can't keep the light bright, if you think that the witness won't be complete because we're too timid, listen, the Lord himself is in the midst of the lampstands. He's right here at Grace Emmanuel Bible Church. Jesus Christ attends this church. And every other faithful gospel witness This spoke then of his intimate watch care over his people. The image of Jesus Christ ever and always in the midst of his people. We saw that last time. He's in the midst of his church. He knows us intimately. There's never a moment when we're out of his care. And that comfort it just comes from, from knowing that the Lord will never let his church become so full of sin that the gospel loses its powerful influence. He might remove the lampstand from a place and say, you're no longer my people. But where there is a faithful remnant, there is a faithful witness. Because the Lord preserves it. Even if it's just one. King's presence with his people is revealed so that we know his intimate watch care. Then we saw his humble condescension, verse 13, just a little bit of review. One like a son of man. For those of you who weren't with us, this is the image presented by the prophet Daniel in chapter 7, verse 13 of Daniel's prophecy. When he said, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This is the condescension of the second member of the Trinity. This is his incarnation. This is the God-man who took on human flesh. And his deity was veiled behind humanity while he walked the earth until he rose from the dead and was glorified. This is the humility of the second member of the Trinity, the Word himself who became flesh. Why? To save sinners. To be a second Adam who would not fail. It's a reference to Messiah. And then we saw his royal priesthood. He was clothed with a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. This is his royalty. Again, the prophet Daniel speaks forth. Chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. It follows the same order. First the clothing, moving from the linen to a belt of gold, and then the hair. This is what you see from the prophet Daniel, and now you see it in the vision as Jesus is among his people. You see his priestly work, his kingly work. He's king and he's priest, and he's made us a kingdom of priests to our God and will reign with him on the earth in his priestly role. He's the go-between, the one mediator. No one could climb to heaven on their own, and no one could drag 
anyone out of heaven and make them like us for we would only produce tainting and corruption. We can't climb there. God will not condescend unless He wants to save sinners. There's no reason for Him to do anything but judge sinners. But in His love and mercy, He calls forth His mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so now you have his watch care and his condescension and his priesthood in this great vision. This is the king's presence with his people revealed. And then we moved quickly then to the king's purity and sovereignty revealed. His purity and his sovereignty which now takes shape in the vision. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow. This is of course... Language again from the prophet Daniel in chapter 7 verse 9. It speaks of the righteousness and thorough purity of the Son of Man. His holy nature. His holy nature. And we saw the piercing awareness, knowledge, and clarity of our great Savior as he's in the midst of his people. Verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. I said to you last time, again, in this vision of the Lord of glory, there is this great imagery pulled from the prophet Daniel, chapter 10, verse 6. His eyes are a flame of fire. It speaks of his omniscience in his church, his ultimate knowledge. We talked last time about the the great comforting and unsettling reality that he is always with his people, knows all things. His counsel is with his eye upon his people. He's never wrong with his counsel. His word by his spirit never comes to our heart with conviction that somehow misses and guesses everything we need to know, everything we want. When you open the word in your most desperate moment, you could even not know where to turn. And the revelation of God by the illumination of the Spirit will be counsel with His eye upon you, He promises. Intimate counsel. That's, that's the first thing this speaks of. His eyes are a flame of fire in that they penetrate with great omniscience. New Testament writer of Hebrews pulls that imagery in as we saw last time in chapter 4 verse 13. Everything is open and laid bare before him with whom we have to do. I said last week that this refers to his ability also to search out the flaws and judge with righteous judgment. That is to say when the Lord has to discipline his people it's, it's not arbitrary or capricious. We admit that about earthly parenting. We do. Hebrews 12 admits it. We had earthly fathers, the writer says in in Hebrews chapter 12, who disciplined us as seemed best to them. (laughs) Boy, that's true. I tried. I tried. It's a wonder my kids aren't scarred. I tried. I mean, I tried to be fair. I never wanted to be inequitable. I didn't want to be lacking in understanding. But sometimes in the busyness of life and parenting, the, the best motives don't always come out with clarity and don't always come out seeing the need rightly. But with Jesus Christ in the midst of His people, He sees with righteous judgment and He is able to bring the kind of discipline that perfectly moves us to share in His holiness. That's the contrast. We had earthly fathers who disciplined us as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us, Hebrews says, that we might share in His holiness. What a great comfort. Are you disciplined by the Lord? Is He taking you through a time of chastening? Has He brought you low? Look, don't, don't elbow Him. Don't bite the the hand that feeds you, don't, don't smack the rod away, kiss it. Because afterward, the writer says, those who've been trained by his eyes of flame that move through your life and see what you need, after you've been trained by it, it yields peaceful fruit. 
Isn't that sweet? All discipline seems not to be joyful but sorrowful for the moment. I mean, the biblical writers are just blunt in their admission that this is difficult, but the Lord moving through His church helps us share in His holiness. That's what He's going to do when He writes these letters to the churches. When you read these letters and you think, wow, that was kind of a harsh assessment. I mean, they're doing the work. They're busy with ministry. They're striving. How can you come down so hard on some of these churches? One of them, you basically say, you're going to vomit them out of your mouth. How can you, I mean, does it, does it really fit? Oh, the Lord is never capricious, never arbitrary. He has eyes to see the flaws. Like flaming torches, the old Hebrew uh, parallel says in Daniel 10, verse 6. The symbolism, by the way, is repeated in chapter 2, notice verse 18, with the church at Thyatira. This is interesting. Each of these images you see of the Lord shows up somewhere in each of the letters to the churches. Notice verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. And of course the other image, his feet are like burnished bronze. Notice what he says, I know your deeds. Of course he does, because he has eyes like a flame of fire. I know your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance. I know them. You're not going to bring a case that I've missed something. You're not going to Note somehow that God has been unfair. I know your deeds. I know your love and faith and service and endurance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Man, you even have energy to get after better ministry. And yet, he says, I have this against you that you tolerate you tolerate a false teacher who leads the church and my people into idolatry and immorality. He even names her Jezebel. Calls herself a prophetess. There's someone in the church you're tolerating. She has some sort of hold over the leadership and some sheep, some power centers in the church. We'll look at this extensively, but the point we're making here is God says, look, I can see it. I know this stuff is going on. The piercing evaluation of the purity of a church. No one can evaluate a church like the Lord Jesus. Every year the elders have a strategic planning weekend. And we do talk a lot as leaders anyway about what's going on in ministry. And we, as a staff, we don't use our weekly staff meetings largely for logistics and and detail work, we, we get into a study of principles from Scripture and we think about them and we press into one another's lives with them and we think about the application of them to the ministry. But even in that annual strategic planning, we open up with uh, preparation of our own hearts from God's Word. And then throughout the strategic planning, you might think that we could jump to some sort of business model, but that would not help because it is the Lord Christ in the midst of His people that needs to assess the purity of a ministry. And so we ask questions about the pulpit and, and other ministries and leaders. What are leaders' lives like? Are we watching one another? Not, not in the sense of some cheap external accountability, but internal regulation by the Word of God. Do we understand what the church is to be? Do we understand the purity standard from Scripture? Are we teaching it enough? Do we train men enough in it? Laymen, young men, do we train the women's ministry in it? From, from the senior women to all the way down, to teach all the way down to those that are coming up into young single life and even families. Are we thinking through the life of the ministry from the standpoint of the Lord's evaluation of its purity and its faithfulness? I mean, you want to storyboard all kinds of other things from a typical uh, SWOT analysis and business model and just put things on the board that are logistics and practical things and are we doing parking lot duty enough and, and are the bushes getting cut enough and, and do we have the aesthetics down and what about our greeters ministry? Are we smiling enough? Has everybody brushed their teeth? I mean, we go on and on with Nordstrom type things. And then we say, are we having enough small groups? Are they meeting enough uh, logistically? What are the numbers? Are people actually going to them? But we're rarely 
if we're not careful in evangelicalism, rarely evaluating things by what the Lord says a church is supposed to be. And the Lord says He comes through His church and by His Word opens up the doors and the windows of ministry and begins His evaluation from His Word. That's how you evaluate a ministry. And one of the churches was tolerating something and the penetrating eyes of the Lord saw it but then there there's his assessment and his judgment we'll just call it his righteous justice that you see in this vision notice not only is not only is the vision giving us this view of his eyes that are like a flame of fire, but also his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. It's very interesting. This is the foundation level of the image. And in the imagery, there's bronze that's been heated up and glowing. Notice chapter 2, verse 18, the same thing. The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Why? Why the feet as burnished bronze mentioned at the church at Thyatira? Because this speaks of the Lord's power and authority to bring the hammer down. We're needed. Righteously. But definitively, certainly. In fact, that's why he says, verse 21, I gave her time to repent. This is chapter 2. And she doesn't want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I'll throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I'll kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. There it is. Verse 26, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. The image here is the Lord's power and authority to righteously bring down the final assessment. The symbol of burnished bronze appears again in the ultimate victory of Christ over the enemy talked about in chapter 19 when the victory comes chapter 19 verse 12 the return of Christ in judgment he comes with justice and with this justice he judges and makes war he comes and he comes with righteous justice and in no uncertain terms he says I'm going to deal with it I'm going to throw Jezebel and her paramours onto a bed of sickness and into great tribulation. I'm going to take care of her offspring so that nothing evil will exist in the kingdom like that. And there's going to be a ruling with a rod of iron from Christ decentralized down into his vice regents as his people and vessels of pottery are going to be broken into pieces by the righteous rule of Christ. This language speaks of the absolute authority and power to judge, sentence, and punish. So, in the vision, the revelation now includes his presence with his people, which, is, which speaks of his watch care and his condescension and his priesthood, his, his love and his mercy. And then the purity and sovereignty is revealed in this image. The king's purity and sovereignty, which includes his holy nature and his piercing clarity and his righteous justice and then his ultimate authority and power. And his ultimate authority and power then includes this next statement at the end of verse 15. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. <laughs> you just can't skip over this, this imagery. It is, by the way, all over Revelation and it is all over the Scriptures. The, the, the vivid symbolism and familiar imagery of powerful, sweeping floodwaters. From the descriptions of our God, they're found all over the Bible. In fact, several Old Testament references to the voice of Yahweh 
refer to his strength, the strength of his voice, and the sound of it refers to the glory of it. Look back at Psalm 29 for a moment. A favorite psalm that just speaks of the sound of God's voice, sometimes translated the voice of God. Notice this psalm. Verse 1, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Notice the theme that's already launched at the beginning of the psalm. This might, this strength associated with His glory. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Or literally the holiness that, is, that befits His majesty. Dress properly is what He's saying. In other words, this isn't physical dress. This is your heart. Prepare your heart, adorn your heart properly with holiness. Verse 3, the voice of Yahweh is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh is over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is majestic. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yes, Yahweh breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. What does that mean? He, he takes valleys and mountainous areas. Syrian's the, the, the uh, area there, the mountain area just outside the valleys of Lebanon. And he moves them around. He makes them shake. He sends valleys and mountains into fits of movement just by the power of his voice. The voice of Yahweh hews out flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. He shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. In his temple, everything says glory. Even the temple itself cannot help but exude the strength and might and glory of God's presence. What you have here is the thunderous sense of the sound when God speaks and, and the glory that it represents. It just, you can just absolutely, when the voice happens, you are caught up and put to fear. It happened, you remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration when they heard the voice in the cloud. They dropped down as if passed out. The voice of Yahweh is powerful, strength, verse 4. The voice of Yahweh is splendor, is probably a best, better translation. He shatters cedars into pieces when he speaks. Valleys and mountains move around and shake. The deer gives birth at his beckoned voice, and forests get stripped bare at the sound of it. And notice John includes the imagery in Revelation 1, just heading back there, the sound of many waters. Some of the translations are interesting. The, the uh, Christian standard translation says cascading waters. The NIV says rushing waters. I think the ESV probably has it right. The roar of many waters or the roar of flood waters, perhaps. That's as close, as the idea, close to the idea as the translation can get, I think. You know what that's like. You, you can hear rushing water over the crest of a hill and not yet see it. You can be floating a quiet, peaceful section of a river and around the corner down the valley you can hear it. Some rushing flood water over a precipice. If water is pouring forth in massive quantities, there is a roar to it that can send a chill down the spine and this is in the imagery what John hears. A voice like rushing waters. He's just describing it. He's writing what he sees and what he hears. Just in that strange little mysterious way, turn around to see a voice. You actually hear a voice, you don't see it, but see the one speaking out of this voice. And the voice, he has to write down what it sounds like. I remember being with my wife in one of the national parks, Yellowstone and the Upper and Lower Falls, and you can see them from a distance. It makes a beautiful picture. But when you go down to the little platform, that is cemented and connected to the rocks right upon the waters as they rush over. You cannot speak to one another. It is so loud. If you've been to 
places where that's the case, Niagara and other places, you know. Massive waves that are hitting shorelines in certain places, it is so loud you cannot talk. Catastrophic floodwaters that sweep away everything in its path. One commentator pointed out in Ezekiel 1.24 that the wings of the living creatures around the throne were moving in full motion and the prophet described the wings sound as the roar of rushing waters like the voice of the Almighty. There it is. When you hear the voice of the Almighty and you hear John or you see John writing this in this vision, he is saying, look, the voice of the Almighty is like this this tumultuous, violent rush of water and you cannot, you cannot pay attention to something else. You cannot be distracted from it. It captivates your full attention. And again in Ezekiel 43.2, Behold, the prophet says, The glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east and His voice was like the sound of waters and the earth shone with His glory. In Revelation 14, verse 2, there's a voice from heaven like the sound of floodwaters and like the sound of loud thunder. You hear the same thing in the victory chapter again in Revelation 19, verse 6. The collective hallelujahs of God's people in song. John hears them in the Revelation and it sounded like when the people of God were singing their hallelujahs, it sounded like the roar of rushing water and like the mighty pealing of thunder. It's powerful. You can feel it as you hear it. What is the imagery here? This is the Lord's supreme voice in His church. This is it. When He speaks, we bow. Every time in chapter 4 and 5, when you see them worshiping around the throne, it says that every time there was singing and there was praising and there was ascribing to God glory and the 24 elders bowed down and worshipped. It says it over and over again in those two chapters. This is what you do when the voice of God speaks. The imagery here is of the Lord moving intimately toward His churches and He is going to bring them counsel, his word, wisdom. And the danger, of course, is to get too familiar with the voice of the shepherd, not because he's your intimate shepherd. We know the shepherd. We know his voice. But to become too casual about his voice. That's why the image speaks of rushing and roaring the voice was like rushing and roaring. Why? Because we're to pay attention to this great voice of the Lord in His church. And while He is a patient Lord, He's a determined Lord. And even though He speaks kindness and mercy by which we are brought to repentance, it's also true that the voice of the Lord is to be revered above all other so-called sources of knowledge and wisdom. At Grace Emmanuel Bible Church, as imperfect as we are as an assembly, we affirm constantly, regularly, repeatedly, and accountably that the Lord Jesus Christ is the master of our lives and we listen to Him. We do not want to throw up disputes and grumblings when the Lord speaks to His people. Our risen Lord of glory is in the midst of His church and His voice, His word is to be heard and heeded. And since as these churches are about to find out, there are times when the Lord has to speak judgments and call for repentance, Peter said that judgment begins with the household of God and so it is with us. The voice theme, by the way, comes up soon when the Lord addresses the church at Laodicea. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. So the voice imagery, speaking to God's people, comes up in this last letter to one of these churches. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, there it is, the voice, 
He's the faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God says this. There it is. He says this. Notice verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. That's not so much a gospel evangelistic verse as it is for the church to repent of not listening to the Lord's voice and beginning again to listen to Him that He might intimately walk among them and do it with joy and freedom and not chastening and not a threat that our lamp is going to be removed. He warns us of ignoring His voice. This is his ultimate authority and that theme carries into the next of John's description here. In his right hand, he held seven stars. In his right hand, he held seven stars. What is this? Verse 20 tells us that the seven stars are messengers. They are messengers. If you look back at verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the messengers or the angels of the seven churches. The Bible does not make clear who they are, nor whether they are angels or humans. doesn't say. The word can be angels and is quite often uh, all throughout the Scripture rendered such, and it can mean merely messenger, and the term can be applied in just a generic sense to a human messenger. Commentators disagree on this all the time, and, and yet the point here isn't so much whether they're angelic or human. The point is that they are intricately connected with the church to which they are assigned as messengers. So you have this this vice responsibility under Christ and he is going to send the messenger to the church that they're assigned to and a part of and inextricably linked to and that messenger is going to represent the Lord to the leaders of that church. Maybe the messenger is even a part of the leadership if it happens to be a human messenger. If it's an angel that God has assigned to take the message to that church, then either way, the leadership is responsible to Christ because the message is going to be delivered with Christ's authoritative voice. What I love about this is that the messengers are connected with the churches and connected with Christ. There is no gap. There is no place between us and Him. He walks in the midst of His churches. He knows the leadership. He sends messages. Those messages are communicated clearly from His Word and the leaders of churches should listen up. They should listen up. You know, it's so sad when a church limps along and struggles along and the sheep really do want good leadership and the sheep long for good food and they don't sometimes even know what they've been missing or for how long. And maybe they pray and pray and pray and pray that the Lord would do something, but in His chastening hand, He sometimes leaves sheep to flounder, scraping and scrimping with an ever-increasing appetite for something greater, and there is this gap between the Lord and His sheep because the leaders there are not faithful. They're one of three things. Either they are lazy and they don't deliver the message from Christ to the church because they won't do the work to know what the message is. Or number two, they're arrogant so that when Jesus gives his message, they actually think they know better and speak to the church what they want to say to the church regardless of what Christ wanted delivered. Or third, they don't know Christ. Somehow they've found their way into the usurper's role. You know what I love about this image here? That the messengers, these messengers, with his message to these churches, they're in his right hand. What does that mean? 
That means that He sends them with His authority, His power, and listen, His legitimate personal right. He owns His people. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. These messengers are in His right hand. In Scripture, that's always connected with the authoritative position, the powerful position, but more importantly, the position that has legitimate personal right. Exodus 15, verse 6, Your right hand, O Yahweh, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. This is the strength of the authority and power of God already described in triplicate. He has all power. Yahweh says to my Lord, Psalm 110, verse 1, a messianic psalm, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's later quoted by the writer of Hebrews about the Lord of glory himself. He has all power. He has all authority. And then you have Colossians 3.1. If then you, being raised up with Christ, if you've been raised up with Christ, then keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is His personal, intimate right to speak to His people. And so Jesus is established in the exalted place of Lord over His people and since he holds the messengers that represent each ministry, then he has the authority over the body of leaders in that church that are obligated to respond to the messengers who carry the Lord's message. Listen, beloved, I read this verse and I just want you to know we plead with you to pray for us. We want to be under the lordship and authority of Christ. It's his personal right over his people. It's not mine. We're servants. Servants of the church, meager ones at that, sometimes quite flawed in our practice. But pray for us because the Lord Jesus Christ holds these messengers to the churches, whether they be angels or humans, these messengers are going to speak to the leadership of these churches. And these leaders are obligated to respond. And notice, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. What does this mean? He makes pronouncements. And these pronouncements are penetrating, they're decisive, they're just, and listen, they're final. Two-edged sword. What a great piece of the image. It comes up over and over again, even in the victory test of, of chapter 19. And we saw it in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 11. With the sword of his mouth, he strikes down the enemy in Isaiah 11. Here the language is, is very specific. It's a, it's a broad sword. It's a rumphaya. It's the large blade that delivers effective blows when the Lord comes against his enemies or brings the sword out of his mouth against anything that would destroy his sheep. He takes them down. It is a broad sword and it delivers a, an effective blow. And it's, by the way, double-edged. Distamas. Its surgical impact isn't dulled and it cannot be avoided. It's on both sides, it cuts both ways, it is penetrating, it is sharp, it is double-edged. You cannot dull it. Even to try to deflect it is perilous. You try to come against God's people, you try to come against His sheep, you try to bring false teaching in, you try to get neglectful and act like you don't have any responsibility to protect God's people, you start doing that kind of thing, you're in serious trouble because the sword out of his mouth which will judge all of his enemies is the same sword that will bring swift surgical trouble to your life. The image is, of course, so clear from the messianic passages that I read earlier. What's John seeing here? Beloved, this is what he's seeing. His Messiah, this wonderful risen Lord Jesus Christ, of all of his people his absolute authority and power brings equity and justice and I make a full circle to where I begin the Lord will reign on the earth for a thousand years 
until the eternal state. And he'll sit on the eternal throne of his father David, promised by God. And he will be the sovereign eternal king, the Messiah of his people. And when he reigns, listen, he will be the sole government. He will be the sole leader, the sole benevolent and righteous dictator, and the sole arbiter of all matters of righteousness and justice on earth. The psalmist says in Psalm 9 verse 8, he will judge the world in righteousness, he will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. And in the 98th Psalm, verse 9, he is coming to judge the earth, he'll judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Listen, the governments and empires and nations and parliaments and dictatorships of the earth have been absolutely unable to perfectly set up a kingdom where only righteousness and equity are practiced and upheld from the top down. Have you noticed? Our own country is in a culture war that is imploding it. And yet we've had the fastest rise to world dominance in terms of a free society. The fastest rise to economic strength and stability that the world has benefited from. And in the free trade market across the oceans, our fast-growing and strengthened economy has, has then been able to enjoy this wonderful trade with other cultures and countries in such a way that, that even our ethics originally designed affected free trade. In world markets. Our borders were opened. And so all of the knowledge of the world in the best cultures across the globe, instead of being monocultural, we were multicultural. And we opened our borders and in came the best of those in intellectual circles and universities and sciences and all of the disciplines across the board from liberal arts all the way to engineering, etc., etc. All of them came in. That's what skyrocketed our success. I remember talking with a monocultural religious group one time in a different country and, and they only see their particular subculture. Important as that is, they only see that one. And I tried to help them understand. You have to understand, America is multicultural because we opened our borders and we enjoyed the best of all of these other foreign cultures that came in. We enjoyed it. We have the best of the world joining up with the generations here in America. And yet, it doesn't matter what the system of our Constitution demanded. It doesn't matter how wonderful a, a theory and ideology it is and when practiced, even a blessing to its people. It doesn't matter how often you set it up like that and try to uphold it. We still have not been able to sustain the benefits. And though our earthly courts are ordained by God for now so that evil will run its full course until the judgment, it's also true that none of those earthly courts are able to hand down decisions with purity and equity ever, totally. Our courts, in one of the best countries and governments in the world, bar none, our courts are filled with everything that plagues every other country's courts and governments. Greed, bribes, prejudice, Absence of legal discernment, ignorance, lies, perjury, malfeasance, false witnesses, unjust sentences, unlawful imprisonments, and even across the globe and even attempts here to raise up evil despots who rule with ruthless cruelty. And John says to the church, I'm giving you a vision of one who is our risen Lord and when he comes, he will rule in such a way that it will completely topple all such corrupt rule, all corrupt jurisprudence and every decision handed down from the throne of David 
will be perfect and just and righteous and pure and unfathomably wise and flawlessly equitable and completely without rival judgment. No argument. What a day. And that benevolent dictator will rule in perfect holiness, perfect love, perfect mercy, which will emanate from his throne in glory. John says, his purity and sovereignty, I saw it in the midst of his church. Beloved, this is, this is the most encouraging vision of our Savior. And he's alive and in the middle of his people right now in these same great perfections. It's unnerving because judgment begins with the household of God and scrutiny comes. We need to pray. It's unnerving, on the other hand, because, or on the one hand, because Christ sees it all, but it's so comforting to know that he's never wrong and he's never capricious and he's never flawed. And he's always with his people intimately to give us everything we need. Isn't that a great encouragement? Lord, thank you for your intimate care of your people and the shining and brilliant vision of the most wonderful, benevolent master we could ever imagine. And Lord, you know the needs of your people from the needs here at Grace Emmanuel all the way across the ocean to the needs of those we love who do ministry and service in their place of work and labor. We want to be pure as a church and a ministry. We want to know your voice and heed it. Help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.